Guru Nation, welcome to episode 452 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. In this episode, we discuss, it's actually the webinar Chris and I do, we discuss everything that goes into being a clinical research physician, particularly when it comes to principal investigator. So this is, we tried to keep everything here, the good, the bad, the ugly, the misconceptions, the common pain points, everything that we can think of let us know in the comments if we missed anything also check in the show notes for the cra academy check in the show notes for the crc academy uh check in the show notes for the patreon channel it's only five bucks a month you get a monthly mastermind as well Uh, i'm trying to do two monthly masterminds uh per month as soon as we get 50 patrons in there so check that out if you need help getting studies for your clinic, text me 949-415-6256. Hopefully this episode on physicians, you know, hopefully you could learn something from it, but uh, even more so, I hope that you can actually send it to a physician who's interested in clinical research. Maybe somebody that wants to work with you, maybe a colleague of yours, or maybe your own doctor. Uh, this is, I think it's important. I think we need more physicians in the industry uh, to solve a lot of problems. We need more patients in the industry. So I definitely think we need more physicians and clinicians in general interested in clinical research. So just check this out. Thank you very much and talk to you soon. So hello everybody. Welcome to the November webinar. Truth about being a clinical research physician slash investigator. And this is the year that you want to do this. This is the year, whether you're a physician yourself or you're a clinician or you're a research site looking to recruit physicians or you're a sponsor looking to recruit physicians as well. This is going to be important for you guys. What do you think about this, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm sure everybody can tell, but Dan has uh, hopefully a cold, but possibly COVID. <laughs> yeah, it's a cold. I mean, we don't know for sure, but I'm getting over uh, what seems to have been a pretty bad cold. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's been going around in my community. Uh, so Thanks. bear with me on the voice because the voice is, I sound worse than I am. I'm actually feeling good, but the, I cough every now and then. But we're going to make sure that we deliver this to you guys like stuffing on Thanksgiving. No. So, so yeah. the stuffing hold oysters or no oysters? I don't like oysters. Uh, I've never had stuffing with oysters. Do they do that? Oh, yeah. It's very popular. Uh, okay. Well... In either case, maybe that's from next year to try. There you go. But what we want to cram into your brains, guys and gals, is really what it means to be a clinical research physician. And feel free to use this these slides. Okay, just uh, we're not going to email you the PowerPoint, but you'll have the replay. The replay is going to be sent to everybody. So just screenshot every screen that we um, discuss, and then you can make your own slides that way. 
But basically, feel free to share it with clinicians in your area uh, because oftentimes they ask questions about this stuff. Hey, well, it seems intriguing to do research, but what does it actually mean? And this is the unbiased, as unbiased as we could possibly be, we tried to list everything on here. So um, we can go to slide number two and kind of see what we got. And Chris, I'm going to ask you if you could read most of the slides and I'll do color commentary because my voice is giving out. Certainly. All right. So principal investigator responsibilities. The principal investigator, or PI, is a physician at the clinical research site who is responsible for everything that happens at the site. This may seem like a large responsibility, but there are ways to delegate responsibilities to study staff and focus on patients. Some of the typical PI responsibilities include training study staff, reviewing safety labs, EKGs, x-rays, etc., making sure patients qualify for studies, explaining the study to patients, and following the study protocol, amongst many other things. Right. And it, it seems like, so basically the PI is responsible for the entire conduct of a clinical trial, uh, <clears throat> which obviously seems like it's uh, overwhelming to many. But the way I explain it, and Chris and I just did a Zoom call with a future PI of ours for one of our sites that we're going to open. The way we explain it is, look, this is our job. Our job is to make sure that the research operations are running efficiently so that you can just continue being a doctor, right? You continue seeing the patients, your own patients, in your private practice. That's going to actually help us in the research side. And then for the research patients, you just continue to be a doctor, review safety labs, EKGs, adverse events, make the determination of whether the study is still uh, safe for the patient uh, and follow the protocol and, and explain the study to the patients. But anything that's not clinical, that doesn't require a physician, we will do, us and our staff, our coordinators, and then the research staff. So you really are just continuing to be a doctor. That's really the easiest way to explain the responsibilities to them. Well, I would throw a caveat in there. So the PI has to delegate these tasks because the, the PI is ultimately responsible for everything. So if anything goes wrong in the study, the PI is essentially to blame. Um, I mean, it's not uh, truthfully their fault. Say the coordinator makes a mistake or something. But the PI is ultimately responsible for that mistake. Um, right. Now, that may seem significant, but it really isn't in the real world in terms of say, the physician's medical license, they're, they're not in any jeopardy in terms of their clinic side. They're not going to lose their, their license unless, like, they kill somebody intentionally. I mean, it would have to be something just very drastic for them to put their license in jeopardy. Just getting in trouble on the research side for minor errors or even larger errors, there's no danger to their license. That's correct. That is correct. And when it comes to things like training staff and ensuring that the protocol is being followed, you really need an, a good study coordinator or somebody who knows what they're doing to run the show so that you truly can just be a physician, right? And uh, Dr. Al Jazeerly, who is our partner on the clinical scoop, 
uh, we discuss this with him all the time. You know, being a research physician is different than being a regular private practice physician in the mm-hmm. sense that you spend more time with your research patient than you would your private practice patient. Uh, it's a more thorough examination. It's more thorough questionnaires. It's more thorough AE assessments. Uh, everything and, is more thorough in research. And I believe Dan's using the term you in general. So you would be the PI or anybody the PI has delegated those responsibilities to. Right. Uh, and by the way, any questions, type them in the chat box. Um, I don't think there's a way to unmute yourself, but uh, feel free to chat if you feel so inclined. And we only have two people on phone, so everybody has pretty much everybody has the capability to to type a question in. Type right. away, guys at gals, and let's go to slide three: study startup. All right, study startup. One of the few things that a new PI might be concerned about is study startup. There are many documents that need attention before a site can begin seeing patients. In sponsored research, a PI does not need to deal directly with the institutional review board during startup, <coughs> during study startup, excuse me. Instead, sponsored research typically has a central IRB. Site must submit initial submission. Site must submit initial submission, which documents how much experience the site has in clinical research and to what extent. So uh, I'll start off. Uh, the first bullet point is the documentations are all the, the study startup regulatory, uh, 1572s, financial disclosure forms, CVs, uh, IRB initial submission, and I suppose you could even throw the contract and budget into that as well. So there's a lot of initial paperwork that needs to be done before um, the site is allowed to screen a patient. Right. And this part's important, and then we're actually dedicating two slides uh, to study startup, uh, because this is usually one of the objections that new physicians bring up is, well, I hear there's a lot of paperwork and a lot of regulatory. And the answer to that objection is, yes, you're absolutely right, but we're handling this work. So really, you're just signing these documents and it's just a matter of you learning what these documents really are so that you know what you're signing. So on the next slide, we actually have examples. We should just go there now. The next slide, we have examples uh, on slide four of um, some of these things, yep. right? And then we even have a little screenshot of a 1572 form, which yep. is one of the most important forms of startup is this 1572 form. So. The good thing about being a physician is you learn this stuff once, the study startup, and it's all the same. Every study, it's the same process, right? You've got 1572, you've got financial disclosure forms, you've got medical licenses, you've got CVs, you've got um, uh, IRB questionnaires. Okay, that's on the study startup side. It gets a little more complicated on the site initiation visit side where you start getting into things like training logs and delegation of authorities logs. But even that, you just learn it once and you know how to do this stuff going forward. So then you can just outsource this to your staff. This is what your study coordinator is for. This is what people like me and Chris are for. 
-hmm. And I will add that some sponsors have additional documentation that they require, but the majority of this is very simple. I'd say the only, there's only two items that have any sort of learning curve whatsoever, and that's the 1572 and an initial submission to the IRB. Everything else is very straightforward, very easy to comprehend and understand. Um, those are the only two documents in which questions may arise, in my opinion, 1572 and the initial submission form to the IRB. Yeah, and that 1572 form is your contract, you as the physician. That is your promise to the FDA that you are responsible for the study. So that's probably the scariest form that you have to sign, and that's why it's the most important form. Uh, but really, it's just a promise that you're maintaining oversight of the study, and you're maintaining oversight over your staff, it doesn't mean that you personally are supposed to do everything. It means that you personally are responsible for everything. In accordance with the protocol, specifically to that protocol. To the protocol and to GCP, good clinical practice, so yes. Um, the next bullet point, you want to read that one? Or the, uh, the no, no, this, this is all about the 1572. So what are some of the other stuff? You mentioned the IRB questionnaire, financial disclosure forms. These are for the study startup, right? So once you've, once you've been accepted for a study, but before you've been initiated for the study, this is called the study startup regulatory phase. So the initial component to this is budget and contract. A lot of sponsors will have you work on budget and, co and contract at the same time you're working on startup regulatory. Um, I oftentimes, oftentimes for the sites that we own, uh, tell them that we're not going to work on regulatory until we have agreement on the budget, because what's the point? If you can't come to an agreement on the budget, you're wasting your time on regulatory. And I always assure them that we'll have the regulatory done the same day we have agreement on the budget. Again, once you've done that regulatory, it's, it's relatively straightforward and simple, and it can be done relatively quickly. All the documents take no more than an hour once you're accustomed to them. This is right. The process becomes simpler and less intimidating once you go through it once. That's really all it takes. The next slide is going to be about how you pull all this off. Because as you can see as a physician, all the responsibility falls on your shoulder, but no physician actually does all that stuff themselves. Right, so it comes down to hiring the right staff, or in cases like Chris and I, most other research clinics across the country, partnering with the right people. And Chris will read off these bullet points, and then we'll provide some color to it. Hi, excuse me. Hiring the right staff. Hiring the right staff will not only help with study startup, it will make running the study a lot easier. Studies generally have the same process for startup, which means that the PI can rely on the same individuals to start any study. Any site directors or site owners can also help the PI by making sure the coordinators and study staff are well-trained. If there is a delegation of authority log, then the PI can designate specific study tasks to staff. And I misread that, but you get the point. Study staff can take care of regulatory documents, screening and enrollment logs, or IRB reports. 
So um, I think almost always there's going to be a delegation of authority log. I have yet to see a study that didn't have one. Um, I suppose if the PI is doing everything on their own, there doesn't need to be one. I um, suppose if the studies, uh, I've seen some peculiar things in phase four studies, you know, in which there's no 1572. So there may not be a delegation of authority log in certain phase four studies. But for the most part, you're going to have a delegation of authority log. Right. Right. And, you know, in theory, all you need for a study, like you said, is a principal investigator. But in practice, I've only heard of that happening once where the PI is doing all the work themselves and they don't have a coordinator. I've nope. never personally even witnessed it. I've just heard it through someone else telling me this story. So it's definitely not common. 99.9% uh, of the time, the PI has staff mm -hmm. to handle these things. And this is why understanding the process as a PI is something that you're going to want to do and why Chris and I give all of the PIs that partner with us a copy of our book, The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research, because this gives you an overview of the process. So if you understand mm -hmm. the process, right, it doesn't mean you have to do every aspect of that process. But if you understand the process, you can properly delegate and properly have oversight over the process. Maybe you don't have people you've partnered with that are like me or Chris. You know, maybe you are the physician trying to start your own site and you're starting from scratch. So it's, it becomes even more important for you to understand the process yourself when it comes to this, if that makes sense. Uh, because this stuff can be overwhelming but at the end of the day, it's really not once you do it. Once you get it done once, it becomes much simpler. And really, it's all about delegation. Delegation of authorities and then training. And it really boils down to having a good study coordinator that can manage the process. A good coordinator is worth their weight in gold. This is why we have the CRC Academy to help uh, sites train their staff. Uh, I mean, this is what's going to take care of most of the heavy lifting for you as a physician. But it's important for you to understand these things. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think what makes this kind of difficult, especially for uh, research-naive staff, is, um, well, one, when you have both PI and study coordinator are naive, it's all of the tasks come on at one time. Right, they're sending the budget and contract, the regulatory documents. Uh, when can we schedule our SIV? I mean, they're all they're just pushing, and it seems overwhelming. Um, again, if you're new, you can always ask for time. You can say we we take this one step at a time. Um, you can have again. You can reach out to Dan and I. We're more than happy to guide you through these processes. It's it's not all that difficult. It just seems overwhelming initially. Right, which is why many physicians decide not to do it uh, because they just think, well, this is going to be a drastic difference to my current workflow uh, because it seems like it's going to be a drastic change to your current workflow as a physician. But mm -hmm. in reality, it's not. 
that's not going to be. If you do it the right way, your best bet is to continue doing your private practice the way you have been doing it and delegate to other staff to handle the research side while you just maintain oversight. I think it's I think it's in combination with that. Just when when a physician takes on their first study, everything seems almost overwhelming and very uh, time uh, inclusive. It, it takes a lot of their time. Um, and I think the second part of that is they just don't know what they're doing, and neither does their staff. So they wind up making mistakes that are very much frowned upon, um, and they just completely lose interest in research. Uh, I didn't sign up for getting chewed out by a CRA, which CRAs rarely do that to a PI, but they will do it to CRCs. So, um, yeah, it's just not something they sign up for. So, strongly recommended if your staff and yourself is a PI or new, you just take on one study initially. Occasionally, you will get some nasty CRAs that do like to chew out PIs too. Sure. I mean, it will happen. Oh, without a doubt. I've never seen it, but I've certainly heard of it. Yeah, it will just be uh, something that you're going to have to realize, hey, this can happen. You know, CRAs can give you a hard time, but just understand at the end of the day, the CRAs, which monitor the studies, are there for your benefit and for your protection. They're Mm -hmm. protecting you from the FDA auditors. That's right. And the FDA auditors may not chew you out, but the FDA auditors can write warning letters, and that can cause uh, you to, uh, or the site to have either fines or just be blacklisted from research. Fines? I've never heard of fines. Yeah, there there's fines um, associated with some um, findings. It, it would depend on what the uh, issues were. Interesting. Usually the liability goes on to the uh, research clinic in those mm-hmm. cases. Uh, but there have been fines given by... No, I'm curious. Uh, now you, you sparked my curiosity. Have you, have you heard of a site getting fined? And if so, for what? And how much was the fine? Uh, I have heard of that. Not personally. Um, but let's just Google it right now. Uh... While while you read the next slide, I'll Google it, okay? All right. All right, help from sponsors. Sponsors have a responsibility to help make sure that the PI is well-trained on the study protocol. Sponsors will also train study staff on, on the protocol during the site initiation visit. This means that the PI is not, only, is not the only person who will provide training on the study protocol. Sponsors also provide many resources which the site can use to make sure that the study is being run properly, one of which is the site's monitor. Sponsors also provide study supplies. So uh, absolutely, Dan and I have been discussing these items. Um, There's the sponsor's responsibility as well as the PIs to make sure the PI is trained on the study protocol. I think what uh, Carlos is trying to say here is that the sponsor will take it on their shoulders as they should, to make sure at the site initiation visit that they run through the slides uh, for the protocol and make sure there's a, a good opportunity to ask questions for the PI and study staff, make sure everybody's fully knowledgeable on what 
what is entailed in the protocol and, and how the study is to be carried out. Um, the slides are not the entire protocol. They're just the key components to the, the protocol, such as the inclusion and exclusion criteria. Typically, you'll have any other con major concerns the sponsor has with the study that they need to make certain the site is aware of. Um, these sponsors also provide. And uh, as we discussed, the monitor is certainly a, a resource. Uh, the first person you should call if you run into any concerns about the protocol during the course of working on the trial is your CRA. Um, oftentimes, they won't know the answer to your question, but they'll find it out for you. Uh, back when I worked as a coordinator for a while, um, many years ago, <clears throat> I oftentimes would call CRA and say, hey, what do I do here? Uh, the protocol is not very specific or not clear, and CRA would say, you know, good question. I have no idea what the answer is to that, and then they would get the project manager into the conversation, and that way we could have a resolution on, on how we approach this particular item. Um, and in terms of study supplies, the sponsor, yes, provides, well, not always do they provide everything you need, but usually. The, the items that they do not typically provide are the lab side, um, you'll probably need cotton balls, band-aids, and things of that nature, tourniquets. They oftentimes don't provide those items, but they provide the lab kits um, in terms of the, the tubes for the blood that need to be drawn and the shipping containers for the labs, things of that nature. Um, if it's a very small study, they may not provide all of the regulatory documentation that's needed. You might have to create a few items for yourself. Dan and I are working on a couple of studies right now for sponsors that they didn't provide everything necessary, so the site had to create these themselves, the documents. But typically, uh, 90, probably 8% of the time, everything's provided that you'll need for the most part outside of the, the necessary lab supplies. So, Dan, did you find? Uh, yeah, you most find? of the finds. Most of the finds are on the investigator-initiated side. So um, typically the FDA will find sponsors, uh, but they will send warning letters, and they can um, recommend um, criminal prosecution for misdemeanor, uh, uh, for, for misdemeanor convictions. Uh, felony convictions, you know, they can, like if they find fraud, um, then they could find the research sites as well. Um, but as far as like just things that would trigger a warning letter, uh, like a deviation and the like, those will not, the sites won't get fined for that. But if there's some criminal elements there, misdemeanor or felony, they could be fined and are imprisoned. And those type of things are like making up patients that don't exist and endangering, right. endangering patients like, of course, data. right. Uh, working on a study or as a patient participating in research, there's always a certain element of danger involved. So if something goes wrong, you're not to blame there as a PI. It's if you're endangering, for example, let's say there's a, um, and the term's escaping me, a prohibited medication. And it's, uh, what is it when the medications are very dangerous to one another? Uh, contraindicated. Yes, contraindicated, thank you. That you allow a patient to participate in a study and you're fully aware that these medications are contraindicated, that could be an issue. I don't think there would be criminal charges in any way unless the patient died because of that. Um, 
but it certainly would be a problem in an FDA audit. But again, I don't think there would be a fine involved with that. Again, unless the patient right. died. It, the fines for the the fines come from the sponsor side for non-compliance mostly, uh, but there there can be fines for sites. But it's I've never had it experienced. Luckily, I've never experienced that, and I haven't even heard of people that I know that have experienced uh, FDA fines. Yeah. So you have to do something pretty serious for that to happen. That, and that's why I was curious. That's when you had said that it seemed seemed out of uh, out of the usual. Yeah, so maybe not a good thing to lead with with your PI. But if you're a physician, you know, now you know the truth. The real truth and nothing but the truth about being a clinical research physician. There you go. And we have, few, now? we have a few questions. Or actually, it looks like they've been answered. I missed these. Sorry I joined late due to other issues. Are you going to send out the link to the presentation? Yes, there will be a link, a link you are You are forgiven for being late. Just don't let it happen again. Okay, and then it's just people conversating with themselves. And I'm just so, kidding. Well, um, yeah. All right. Concerns about clinical research. Some physicians are concerned about patients getting placebo. While this is true for some of the study participants, others might get experimental drugs. PI will need to uh, excuse me. The PI will need to monitor the patient progress to ensure patient safety. Somebody typed in a question or a statement, and I read that while I was reading the slide. Um, so anyhow, uh, the PI will need to monitor the patient progress to ensure patient safety. So, and this is true, usually um, there is no placebo if, if the study involves a patient perishing from not receiving treatment. Uh, oncology is a good example, cardio, any number of trials in which the patient's not receiving, receiving some sort of treatment that there's a good chance they may uh, perish. Uh, there's not typically going to be a placebo in that. Um, but any other type of disease, there certainly can't be a placebo. So the patient definitely can worsen. Um, and as the, the bullet point states, the PI needs to, to stay on top of this and make sure that the patient is safe and that uh, they're not um, experiencing any problematic or problems due to placebo. Did we lose you, Dan? No, no, that's right. Usually physicians are concerned about the uh, placebo aspect. And like you said, you know, it's just a matter of letting them know, hey, the first of all, it's voluntary for the patients to be in the study. And second of all, you can take them out as the PI anytime as well. It's even if they don't want to get out. Yeah, even if they don't want to leave, you, you can make them leave. That's what. That's why you're the PI. You know, this mm -hmm. is why I say, like, your job as a PI will really be no different than your job as a physician. I mean, patient safety is number one priority. Yeah, we, uh, Dan and I, uh, oftentimes our principal investigators work in uh, psychiatric studies, and there have been times when the patients are... Or I can't think of the term again. I didn't get much sleep last night. But uh, they're, they're worsening. They're decompensating. Thank you. And they don't want to leave the study because they get paid to participate. Um, and again, the PI has to make this determination: is it safe for them to continue? So, right. And oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes it's not, and they go back on standard of treatment. You know, mm -hmm. even if it's against the patient's will. 
uh, it's the PI is the one who's running the study. Right. Um, the next slide, slide eight, more concerns about about research. There may be some concerns about patient adverse events, right? Adverse reactions to study drugs, which then leave in the idea of the physician, maybe leaves the PI liable. So it's important to know the PI will not be held liable as long as they're following the protocol and good clinical practice. It's called indemnification. And it's mm -hmm. in every contract. You yeah, have to ask for it, but it's in yeah. every contract. There you go. You have to have someone like Chris ask for it. Again, if you're a PI, you need to either partner with someone that knows what they're doing or figure out what you're doing yourself. Yeah. Um, clinical research is very thorough when it comes to patient safety. Like Dr. Al Jazirely said, and I mentioned earlier, you know, it's much more thorough. You get much more complete care as a patient by being in a study than you do just as a regular patient in someone's private practice for the most part. Even though it's not considered patient care because it's a research, you're still getting uh, thorough examinations much more so than you would as a regular patient. I mean, you're getting everything, comprehensive panels, EKGs almost at every visit. It's just above and beyond what's standard of care mm -hmm. as far as safety oversight. And it's not uncommon for sponsored labs to detect patient risk factors. You know, we've had several patients uh, in trials you know, because we do psychiatric trials and a lot of these patients are from lower socioeconomic background and they don't really have good health care uh, at all. And we've diagnosed, we've, we didn't diagnose, but we've, because of research, oh. we've detected yeah. abnormalities in their lab that then we would send to the, to the physician of the patient and they would diagnose a new condition that they would otherwise never have discovered. Yeah, very commonly diabetes is as they want the top one. Diabetes, hypercholesterolemia. We've discovered AIDS in a patient who didn't know they had AIDS before HIV, HIV mm -hmm. positive. So, you know, this stuff is like this is a very thorough uh, care that the patients receive in research, even if they are on placebo. Yep, I don't know. Uh, slide nine, I believe. You would believe correctly. Mm, I'll leave this one to you. All right. Physicians with I see, less bullet points than the previous slide. There you go. Physicians with private practices. Physicians with private practices tend to make great PIs. And this is absolutely true. Why? Because they have a built-in database. Uh, this is because they already know the patient history and they can make better recommendations about the participation in clinical trials. Also true. It becomes a lot easier to enroll their patients this way because there's already a patient-physician relationship, also true. Patients that are referred are more challenging to enroll patients that are referred what? Patients that are referred are more challenging to enroll. Uh, patients that are referred because the PI will not be familiar with the patient's history. Ah, uh, we found a Carlos typo. He is yeah. uh, going to be uh, publicly affiliated today. Yeah. Yep. Um, what he means to say is patients that are referred uh, by outside physicians are more challenging to enroll than patients that are referred by the PI. 
because when they're coming from an outside clinician, we don't have a background on the patient. And when they come from within the physician's private practice, we do have a background on the patient. So that's what Carlos means by that. It's If you're a physician with a private practice, your private practice, your database is very uh, valuable in a clinical research context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is what that bullet point means. But, uh, yeah, good catch, Chris. So yeah. if you've got a private practice and you're a physician, again, the best thing you can do business-wise is to continue managing your private practice as you would be and just partner with some researchers who know what they're doing. And you can, I mean, the the synergies there are one plus one equals three or beyond because you're going to continue seeing your private practice patients. You need to continue expanding your own database anyways because that's going to help re- their, your research arm in the long run as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, slide 10 continues with this uh, intriguing concept of right. physicians with private practice. If you're a physician running a private practice, you can easily create a second stream of income by expanding into clinical research. Sponsors pay for patient visits at a higher rate than private clinics typically charge. They not only pay sites, but they also pay patients for participation. Physicians who get involved in clinical research and have a clinic can look for opportunities for physicians as key opinion leaders. Being part of studies allows clinics to brand themselves as having options outside of traditional care. And all are true. All of these and all of these bullet points came up in our Zoom discussion earlier with the physician who looks like he's going to be joining us as a PI, right, at a new clinic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, literally, literally, all these things came up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's so many opportunities from a prestige standpoint, branding yourself as a key opinion leader, right? No longer just relying on being a high prescriber of a particular medication. I mean, that's one way to be a KOL, but also working on the research end of the new stuff that hasn't come out to market yet. That's another way to position yourself as a KOL. And if you're doing both uh, the best of both worlds, these sponsors are going to love to have you involved with them on the sales side and on the R&D side. All right, next slide. And there's one important concept that hasn't been touched on yet. Maybe it's in the last slide. The last slide is this one, slide mm-hmm. 11. Opportunities from working with sponsors. Sponsors share data about sites that perform well, well and not so well as, as well. <laughs> sites oh, yeah. that perform well are typically contacted again for repeat business. This is true, and the reverse is true. Um, if you're not doing well at, uh, at research and you're making multiple mistakes and errors, uh, that word gets out too, so you're less likely to be contacted. Um, the biggest error is not recruiting enough patients, not enrolling enough patients, excuse me. If you're a PI who knows the medical monitors or other sponsor-level representatives, you may have the opportunity to have sponsors help you with investigator-initiated clinical trials. If this is the case, you can have your study sponsored and keep some publishing rights. Yep, very true. Any color? The investigator-initiated aspect is also intriguing to, quite honestly, the physician that we discussed research with today, that this was our second discussion already. 
So he's going to be joining us as a PI. Um, he's not necessarily doing it for the money. I mean, who doesn't want additional income? So there is an aspect of that to everybody, I think. But he's mm-hmm. really interested in the investigator-initiated side. So he wants to build up his own research expertise to where he can start doing his own studies. He's got a lot of interesting ideas uh, that he would like to develop and maybe collaborate with a manufacturer or a sponsor on. There's Mm -hmm. also the opportunity to get grants from the NIH, National Institute of Health. If you have a really good uh, idea and you have a grant writer on your team, uh, which is another aspect uh, to research that we don't really get into because it's not industry-sponsored studies. Those are publicly-sponsored studies. But the NIH provides grants every year to investigator-initiated trials as well. Yep. And, uh, and you don't necessarily have to have a grant right on staff. There's, there's many out there that will handle this for you, but they are kind of pricey. I think they run from ten to $25,000 yeah. to, to write your grant proposal. That's right, and uh, they are pricey. Um, but you can use some of the uh, profits maybe you made from the industry-sponsored stuff if it's something really near and dear to your heart, like a few doctors that we know. You know, they use their industry-sponsored trials to fund their own investigator-initiated trials. Yep. So that is uh, an option for you guys as well. Any questions? Well, I, I would like to touch on one other concept here. Uh, that I don't think was really brought up, but that is time, the time necessary of the PI to work on a clinical trial. Um, and as we stated today, with the, as the, the PI Dan's brought up a couple of different times that we spoke with, or potential PI, uh, one study you're probably looking at, and again, and this all depends on how busy the study is in terms of what's required in the study and how many patients are enrolled, but I would say that the average amount of time a PI needs to investigate, uh, invest into a research trial is about one hour in, in a study. Uh, it could be a little bit more if you're relatively busy. Maybe it's a couple hours. Um, one, now, between one to four hours a week. Again, it, it's be at four hours. It's going to be a very intensive study. Lots of work. Um, right. Lots of work required by a physician or even specifically the PI, and then on top of that, you have a lot of patients enrolled to be at the four-hour mark for one study. Right. Um, uh, so I remember not too long ago, we had a bunch of studies running, and we were seeing, I don't know, 15 patients a week, which is a fair amount of patients, and the PI maybe spent four hours a week on the study. Right. So, again, it just depends on how intensive the study is. How intensive it is and, honestly, how successful the clinic gets to where you're starting to see that many patients and that many studies going on. Right. And then the income generated... Sorry. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, I was just going to say, the income generated is more than going to justify that. Yeah, we've had a number of... We have to try and talk clients into keeping their private practice running because it's feeding research because they just want to do research. Um, right. Uh, one, we couldn't talk into just doing, uh, into doing both. She just went fully research because she said she had enough referral network and she didn't need to do practice anymore. Right. Um, so it, 
it's highly advisable. Maybe you cut back on private practice, or maybe you employ a nurse practitioner or a PA to pick up some of your responsibility on that side. So you can focus more on research possibly, but strongly advisable to keep your, your clinic open because it, it plays well to sponsors too. They, they see that as the source of your patient. So if you have no longer, if you no longer have a private practice, it, it can be somewhat of a hindrance. Right. And that in the case of that doctor, she was the owner of her site, right? So she was not an independent contractor with a site to where it wouldn't, if you're an independent contractor of a site, it wouldn't make sense for you to not continue your private practice. Good point. Um, it really just makes sense if you like are an owner of the site. Yeah, that's a different story. But most but it, doctors, when they start out, they're just going to be con- independent contractors. But still, I'm not misleading our audience as both of us did try to talk her into keeping her practice. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. Uh, but that's easy for us to say. We don't have to do the work. Right. <laughs> and deal with Medicare and who knows all the other insurance companies out there. I know that stuff's getting harder for the doctors. Absolutely. Any questions on this beautiful Monday? Happy Monday nope. to everybody. No, there's no questions, uh, at least thus far. Um, wait, let's see. I'm starting a new research site in Dallas. I'm looking for a PI. Any suggestions? So we do have a question. Yeah, I got plenty of suggestions. Like, get busy. You know, get on Google. <laughs> yeah. Get on Google. Get busy. That's helpful. No, seriously, get on Google, get on LinkedIn, start sending like 50 emails a day to clinicians in the area, even if it's to their private practice inbox. Uh, call their office, stop by their office if you want. That's a little weird during COVID times, but uh, email works really well. LinkedIn, uh, just mass email, right? And um, Indeed works well too, initially. I, I'm So I run a lot of Indeed ads for PIs. And I'll tell you, the first week, maybe two weeks, that works great. You get lots of responses. But it barely works after that for some reason. I think, I think you need to take a break from it for maybe two, three months and then run another ad. Because you just, it seems that the responses just completely dry up. Oh, yeah. I think it gets pushed down to the bottom of the postings. Um, you know, much like Craigslist when you post right. something new. Um, but yeah, Indeed works, but I want, I really want people to get out of their comfort zone and start reaching out on their own um, because people are not doing that. Uh, we, you know, we have these conversations with people that want to start sites and they're just afraid to reach out to doctors and you, you know, you can't be successful if you don't get started. Yeah, you got to be a salesperson. There you go. It all comes down to sales. And I only laughed because I thought you were going to end with get busy, not elaborate. Oh, sure. I mean, I could end with get busy, but uh, everybody's got Google. You know, just search internal medicine, family medicine, general practice, and then go specialties with your zip code and start approaching all those guys and gals. Cross-reference them on LinkedIn. Reach out to them there. See if they've posted anything. Find their Instagrams. I mean, just Get busy. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly. And be ready to sell and be ready to have a bunch of objections and be ready to come back to this webinar as a reference. I apologize that my voice is not that great, but hey, 
screenshot the slides and make your own slideshow out of it. <laughs> Better yet, screenshot the slides, make your own slideshow, and then record your own voice reading it, preferably when you don't have a cold, and send that to the doctors. Hey, your voice isn't that bad. You all can use Dan's voice. Yeah, it was worse earlier. I had to blow my nose a few times. Uh, that's why you disappeared? Uh, that's why I muted my phone, yeah. Okay. And thank you, Luis. Luis does great information. Who? Uh, Luis says great oh, information. Thank you, Luis. I, I, we appreciate you tuning in and uh, hopefully it provides some value. All right, so we have a follow-up to the Dallas. I have a doctor with no prior research experience that wanted to be PI. Does the sponsor shy away from PI without prior research experience? And the short answer is yes. However, you just, it's like Dan said, get busy. You just have to keep plugging away. Uh, um, yeah, here's the answer to that. Uh, yeah, and now what? Like, the answer is yes. Sponsors would love to have your doctor have research experience, but your doctor doesn't. So now what? Right? So you have to, now yeah. what is where you make your money because that's where you tell them we have a research naive patient population and the PI might not have research experience, but I'm the site director and this is my resume, blah, blah, blah. And there's never been a better time than 2020, 2021 to be a research naive physician. Yeah, and what Dan means by that, I'll elaborate on that last statement, is sponsors will work with you as your entire site can be research naive. They will work with you if they're in need. And that's what Dan means by that. Right now, they are in need. There's a lot of yeah. studies out there. So they'll overlook many of uh, your negatives, right, or the positives. And the positives in this case are, as Dan just mentioned, have a research-naive patient population, and hopefully your PI for whatever study that they're considering you for has a lot of patients that qualify. Um, so those are all important components. Um, and I see here James says, and I'm a CRA with 10 years of experience, try to open a site. So, of course, that's an added bonus, uh, your 10 years of experience. So you can speak the language of research. So if they should come out for a site selection visit, um, they'll know that not everybody there is research naive. They'll know the physician is, but they'll be more comfortable in the fact that here's this person, lots of experience, can offer guidance to the PI in terms of what's necessary in research. Um, but again, I, in my opinion, it all boils down to timing. Is there a lot of studies out there so that sponsors are going to take a chance on a research naive physician, which that answer is yes. Um, but still, you're going to get uh, sponsors that are not interested in research naive positions, but I promise you there are sponsors out there that will take that chance. Yeah. Uh, direct experience with us. Uh, direct. Our doctor we're partnering with, that we're going to partner with, is research naive. It's like not even on uh, my top 10 list of concerns for starting that site. It's, so, you're only research naive once, and that's it. So it just takes one study to get going. Now, to be fully uh, open here, there's a big difference between the Dr. Dan's referring to that we discussed 
research with today and where you're at, James. Dallas is a, a little bit more um, competitive. Uh, where we're looking, there is no competition. So uh, sponsors are going to be more interested in where we're at. Again, though, I, I don't think that I don't think that's a complete disaster for you in terms of just where we're at right now with the studies. Um, There's not enough sites to handle these studies that are out there, and it looks like they're just going to continue get, to become more studies as 2020 ends and 2021 comes up. Yep. Um, oftentimes what you need to do, uh, at least this is what we did our last research in any physician, you just take a study you can't get patients for, just so you can put experience on the PIs. I mean, on the PICB, and that's not going to look good with that particular sponsor or CRO. It, you may have kind of negated any future opportunities with them. Burned a bridge now, but it, I'm sorry. What did you say, Dan? Yeah, you may have burned a bridge. <laughs> yes, exactly. But now you have research experience, and that's what matters to everybody else. So now you have some. Yeah, I just read an article. Like it costs the sponsor thirty to fifty grand to activate one site in an average study. Yeah, sounds that sounds about right. I would think it might even be a little bit more. Yeah, this was a 2017 article, so it might be more now. But that's what it was. And so let's just say fifty grand per site to activate. So they want to see some patients from you if they're gonna if they're gonna activate you. So if you don't enroll any patients, I mean you are nothing. You are literally a liability to them. Yep. What I strongly recommend to our clients who are research naive is take any study you can get at least one patient for, regardless of how many patients you promise them. Let's say you promise ten, as long as you get them one patient. They won't, you won't be a complete negative to them. They will consider you in the future. Right. Yeah, one patient's good. It's still data, and you're no longer a liability. Yeah, you, you didn't keep your word that you would get them 10 patients, so you're not going to be the first site they come to in the future, but they will come back to you. Right. You, your best bet is to get more patients than you promised, and then you go on what's called a, oftentimes, go on what's called a preferred site list. So they come to you first. That's ideal. But again, when you're research naive, you may not have that opportunity and you just got to get some, some experience. That's right. Always lead with your strengths. If you have a big patient database, that's a strength. Uh, if you have an experienced coordinator, that's a strength. If you're a CRA with 10 years of experience, that's obviously a strength. And James says maybe we start with a phase four study. And sure, if, if that's what you can get, you absolutely start with that. I would start with whatever you can get first. Exactly. Exactly. Phase, that whole phase four strategy is a great strategy in like a normal market where there's not an extreme amount of studies. This is we're not in a normal market. Uh, turn on the news, guys. This is we are not living in normal times. In case anyone's confused, this is not normal market. This is a extremely busy clinical research market. There's just not enough sites, not enough patients to fulfill the studies that are out there, and not to mention the ones coming out. Yep. 
Nice. We're not in the normal market. I don't. I can't recall the last Phase Four study I saw. I think it's been nearly a year. I don't even know if I'm running Phase Four studies right now because the purpose of a Phase Four study is really marketing, right? Let's get lots of patients into these studies so that the doctors get used to utilizing whatever we're doing, whatever the right. studies based on, whether it be a device or a product or or drug. Um, it requires patients to come to the office, and lots of patients aren't coming to the office right now. So I don't think sponsors are really running phase four trials right now again it's true yeah we haven't yeah and with all the covid going on you know with all the flu-like symptoms you're going to have people with adverse i mean look at me you know i had a flu i don't think it was covid but it might have been but if i were in a phase four study i would be showing adverse events this week and they don't necessarily want that in a phase four study uh during a pandemic okay. All right, we have another question. Can't the sponsor terminate the trial due to lack of participants at the PI office? And certainly, they do this often. It still doesn't negate the fact that you worked on the trial. So if your question is in regards to uh, research, your PI still has that research. They still are signed on to the trial. If another sponsor looks up, which they can, but if they, well, they can sometimes. Uh, look up to see if you participated on this particular trial. They'll see the PI's name there. And again, what I mean by is they sometimes they list all sites on clinicaltrials.gov that participated on the study, but usually they don't. And oftentimes, even when they do list all sites, they miss some sites. So um, they really can't look up who's participated on the study, but if they could, you would be listed. Um, if If that's your rationale for asking. But if it's just the way a typical study operates, yes. Sites get removed if they're not enrolling patients eventually. Not always, but usually they do. You get a warning too, typically. If you don't screen a patient in the next month, uh, they're going to remove you from the study. Oh, yeah. I've been on that uh, end of that phone call a few times. Yeah, me too. All right. Yes, sponsor can terminate a study due to lack of enrollment. They don't like to pull the plug too quickly because they spent so much to open a site. So they rather have you try to enroll rather than not trying. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, that's why they afford you the opportunity. They will notify you, hey, if you don't screen or enroll a patient in the X time, we're going to have to discontinue your site. They want you to, basically they're just threatening you to try and motivate you to some activity. Um, if you're still not going to do it, then they just kind of lose hope typically. But they definitely will work with you. They oftentimes will even have another CRA come out and, um, sorry, Dan, what's, what's it called? Uh, clinical trial educator. Uh, no, the meeting. Um, uh, booster visit. There you go. So they'll come out for a booster visit. That's where they just go over the study with you again, see if there's anything the sponsor can do to help you recruit. They're just trying to get you to motivate you to get to work. Um, but again, this may not be the case. You just may not have patients. We'd love to get to work. We just don't have any patients. <laughs> and you can exactly. tell the that when they come out, hey, is there any way that the sponsor can help us get patients? Are they running any recruitment? Do they offer advertising funds? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they have a central recruitment campaign that they're running. So they're literally sending leads to the sites too. Yeah, thank you, James. James says booster visit too. I'm just really tired today. 
things are not coming to me. Didn't sleep well last night. So perfectly understandable. Dan's sick and things are coming to him better. <laughs> well, that's probably due to the meds. Well, I, I'm, I know what a booster visit is. How Dan and I discussed this in our book, but there's trouble in coming to me. All right, I'm done with that. You guys have been a great audience. We appreciate it very much. Replay will be sent to everybody. And go out there and make it happen. <laughs> Thanks, Jocelyn. Uh We do have one other statement here. Uh, oh, James says, feel better, Dan. Um, Irina. Irina. Irina says, quality indicators include things such as a as time from site initiation to first patient inclusion, and so on. That is, no sponsor can afford to wait years for the first patient to be included. Yep, that's true. All right. We love Irina. Irina is, uh, uh, you know, very good at uh, making inroads with doctors, being a physician from Ukraine. Yep. I feel better, Dan. Thank you, guys. I am feeling better. I just don't sound like it. All right, everybody, you're welcome, and we look forward to seeing you next month. Absolutely. The last webinar of the year, I think it's going to have to be a special one. I just don't know what it's going to be about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, reflection on 2020. Wow. I mean... We may need like a eight hour live stream for that one. <laughs> yeah, right. Honestly, we're blessed to be in this industry. Uh, this year has proven that to me. Oh yeah. Could you imagine being in the restaurant industry? Even if you're the owner of a successful restaurant, you're hating life right now. Yeah. If you're the restaurant guru, I don't know what's going on right now <laughs> with you, but you know, yeah. I'm just happy to be in this industry where it's important work and definitely pandemic proof. Uh, I don't know about recession proof, but I don't think anything's recession proof, but no, pandemic we, proof, yes. We've experienced a recession and this industry certainly is not recession proof. Right, but it's not. It's among the better ones still. Sure, even in sure. recession. You lose 50% of your possibilities out there. Instead of 100. Yeah. Yep. Makes it very competitive then, though. Strike while the iron's hot, though. Get your research naive physicians now, because I think 2021 is going to be busy. I don't know about 2022. That's when we start getting into speculating, uh, speculation. I don't know. I know nope. 2021 is going to be busy. Nope. Nope. I would agree, unless we get run into a depression, which who knows when that's going to happen. But hey, who knows? Let's, let's not concentrate on the negatives. Yeah, yeah. That the topic will definitely not be that. In December, but you guys give me your suggestions. All right, everybody. Thank you for attending, and uh, have a good month if we don't see you before then. Right, everybody. Stay well. Right. Bye-bye. So, hey, everybody. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you leave a review if you could be so kind, please. 
uh, and also go to theclinicaltrialsguru.com if you're interested in learning more about who I am, who some of my guests are. Uh, you can have access to some of my YouTube videos. Uh, I do a lot of videos about clinical research. So go to theclinicaltrialsguru.com and you can also call or text me anytime, 949-415-6256. Also follow me on any social media platform. It's Dan Svera. And you can also email me if you'd like, dan at theclinicaltrialsguru.com. Thank you very much.